0: Welcome everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium podcast. I am your host Craig here with another uh sh- shall we call it um embarrassingly accomplished person in Frank Bedor. Frank, how are you? <laughs>
1: hey Craig, it's great to be on your show.
0: Thanks for having me, man. And for anybody who is curious what I mean, just go Google him. Go just Google him, go to his website, go check out the about page. Oh. It's it's Come ridiculous. On. Oh, no, I'm serious, Frank. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> no, you've uh, you've done some cool stuff, and I'm really pleased to have you here on the podcast. We're going to be talking about why stories last. Now, if you are a longtime listener of the show, and I mean a long time listener of the show, going back to episode uh, 17, 18, something like that, you'll know that when Ryan and I started this whole thing, that was one of the questions that we kept asking. Why do certain things last? Will this last? Will that last? Are are our kids gonna be reading this or watching this movie? Will their kids and so on? Uh, That's the sort of question we're gonna be tackling today, Frank and I. So before we do so, I'll just remind everybody to go to thelegendarium.com where you can find past episodes. You can also find a calendar with future episodes uh, and links to Discord to join the conversation, and Patreon to support the show. We're actually doing something new right now. We Usually it's just been a tip jar, but there are bonus episodes now on, uh, on Patreon, that thing I just said, uh, where Todd and I are going through the Wheel of Time again. He's going through it, and I'm asking him about it because 15 books is too much for me to read again. All right, so... With all that out of the way, Frank, why do stories last? <laughs> That's such a big question. I know, I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let's <laughs> let's back up and tell people just a little bit about you. Um, if they don't know who you are yet, because they haven't Googled you yet, or they just don't know outright, then the great love of your life is... It, it, fictionally speaking, is uh, Alice in Wonderland and its sequel. So as I am to Tolkien, you are to those stories. And you've kind of built a life and career somewhat around those, yeah?
1: Well, that's true. And I wouldn't say it was my great love story because when I first read Alice, I was 10 years old. And it was my grand—my grandmother's name was Alice. It was Alice in Wonderland was my mother's favorite book. Therefore, my mother and grandmother thought it should be my favorite book. And as a 10-year-old boy growing up in Minnesota, enjoying the outdoors, I did not understand a girl in a blue dress falling down a rabbit hole as a very exciting story. I was you know a uh, jack london fan um mm. i wanted adventure stories and uh i decided that i would write the looking glass wars for every 10 year old boy who was forced to write alice in wonderland uh and so i reimagined what that story would be to the chagrin of my mother but uh But I came to love Alice once I went to college and I started rereading it. And I saw the the I was reading the levels of storytelling and themes and puns. And and uh, and then I went on a sort of research trip to to London to flush out the true story behind Alice in Wonderland.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those interesting Mm -hmm. stories that it's to be totally transparent. It's been a long, long time since I read Alice in Wonderland. Uh, So uh, anything I say is colored by decades of, uh, you know, not having read it (laughs) for a long time. But my wife is actually reading it to our seven-year-old daughter right now. and And my wife is talking about how much fun it is for her to watch our daughter react to certain things. She likes the, you know, the whimsical characters and the strange landscapes and the funny voices that my wife puts on for all this stuff and like so she she has some fun with it that way and then as she's reading it to our daughter my wife is going wow there's there's some stuff going on here there's you know (laughs) there's some darkness there's levels going on yeah that that the seven-year-old is not going to comprehend
1: and depending on how you read it you're, you can see it as a as a horror story i mean the fact that she 's stretching and expanding and getting taller and shrinking down um, there's so many aspects of it that it can be terrifying so depending on who 's reading it and what your interpretation is, it can be that whimsical story or it can mm. be you know it can be deeply disturbing and and dark it 's nice that your wife can use uh voices uh to to translate uh her own interpretation to your daughter which is uh which is pretty cool
0: yeah yeah she's doing that one i'm uh reading to our 10 year old son right now we're doing the Redwall series uh i'm reading that one with him and it's fun like i'll do the voices uh on one page we we alternate pages and he reads the other page and uh and he'll then pick up on the voices that I do and try to do them as well. It's uh, pretty adorable, honestly. Read yeah, to your kids, everybody.
1: That's a very that's a very nice technique. I did the same thing with my kids to get them into reading, so that they would feel like there would be a flow. I'll read one page or a couple pages. You read a couple pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, that's excellent. <laughs> you should uh, you know you should read him also. Uh, the Phantom Toll Booth. Oh if gosh. You- if you want to have some whimsical and some puns and yeah. uh some good language
0: yeah absolutely uh we're we're doing red wall right now and then after we do a wrinkle in time for the show here i'm gonna pull that one out and read that with him and he'll he'll love that phantom toll though would be amazing that's a great one uh, anyway okay we're far afield because this is the legendarium and we have tangents that's what we do but we'll get back on track Let's stick with Alice in Wonderland and then we can kind of broaden it out uh, to other stories as well. But let's consider this question of why stories last uh, and maybe you can you know, use your experience with Wonderland um, and let, let's come at this question any way you'd like to. Uh, why, why do you suppose Alice in Wonderland itself has endured so long? I, yeah,
1: I think it's a it's a it's a good it's a good um, example or a story to um, to use to answer the question because there's there's lots of answers. Um, you know, when you have something that's timeless, it creates a bridge from generation to generation, and in the case of Alice in Wonderland, from culture to culture, and you have to wonder why. Alice has lasted and fo- found its way into pop culture not just in terms of the books but in terms of lyrics and music and games and movies and TV shows and in um you know almost every conceivable corner of pop culture um and for for me part of the story is that you know Alice is about imagination it's you know, at its core, it's so imaginative that I think artists take it as, <clears throat> as a muse for creativity. Um, Lewis Carroll used Alice as his muse for the stories. And we have handed that down or taken that and built on it. So in the fifties, <coughs> excuse me, in the fifties, Alice was an optimistic character. Um, you know, we are coming out of the post-war and, it's like, hey, we, we, we are looking at it very optimistically. In the 60s, you know, it became about the psychedelic aspects of it. So stories last when they can reflect history or a particular cultural time. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm going to stop for a second. Can That's I,
0: just fine. Do
1: you, can I get a glass of...
0: I'll get my own drink out of my repurposed bottle here of water.
1: Ah, uh, nice. So I, th- I think um, I think Alice um, captures a shared a shared history with culture um, and storytelling.
0: So it, it's I'll go with what I know, which is Tolkien, here for a moment. There's uh, one of my favorite books about Middle-earth and about Tolkien. Is uh, It's called J.R.R. Tolkien, Author of the Century. And um, Tom Shippey, the author of that, he makes a point of saying, I did not title this book the author of the century. I t- titled it Author of the Century because uh, he argues that Tolkien... It encapsulates more than anybody else what the 20th century was about in The Lord of the Rings. Okay, so now we know that's why he considered him the author of the century, (coughs) but then those stories endure and they now we're well into the 21st century. People keep reading, keep caring about these stories and presumably, hopefully, as far as I'm concerned, they'll keep doing so into the 22nd century and beyond. There's something about you're writing for exactly your time and reflecting your time. But if you can, if you can simultaneously write for your time and transcend it and get to, or, or go deeper, I don't know which direction to go up or down, but either way, you're getting to some human truth that is going to be reflected, as you say, in future generations. So um, what... Do you think, I guess, uh, let's go with a yes or no. Do you think that Alice resonates as strongly now? And if so, or, you know, to whatever degree those stories do, why is that? What are we seeing in Alice today?
1: Well, if you just look around, um, you know, society is very disrupted in all kinds of ways, whether it's in politics or or in entertainment, um, basically everywhere is being interrupted and and the facts are no longer facts. Um, There's so many things that are called into question. There's such a divide. And Alice in Wonderland is the archetypal story of chaos and disruption. Mm. disruption because you have this little girl who's going into this place and nothing makes sense. And a lot of us are trying to make sense of what's happening in the world. And Alice is representative of that, of that chaos and the weirdness. And I think that she comes out the other side. She, she is strong and courageous in the, in, in, in the line of fire of all of these this weirdness that's going on around her. And I think that we look to that for ourselves like, okay, given how disruptive things are, how do I find my center? How do I find my way through? Um, and then the other part of it is identification. You know, who am I and who am I in this culture that's happening right now? Who am I in this social media culture? Who am I in this political culture? Um, where do I stand and how do I express myself? Um, And if I do express myself, what's the blowback going to be? You know, off with your head. You're judged now uh, before you're, you're guilty before proven innocent. So I think that you can Alice in Wonderland is is constantly a metaphor for what's going on. Just take, for instance, down the rabbit hole. Think about down the rabbit hole.
0: Just well, as, a, Carole, as a phrase or as a concept? As, as, a,
1: as a as a metaphor, hmm. and how often you hear it. Now, that was Lewis Carroll's uh, invention. Now, he didn't invent rabbits and ra- rabbit holes, but he invented the idea of a rabbit hole being a place that leads you to a portal. And that can be negative, you know, like, you know, I'm down the internet rabbit hole. I'm, you know, I'm on... uh it's ipsy too much, you know, whatever that whatever your thing is, um, it can also be a place where I'm down the rabbit hole because I'm I'm creating and it can be positive. Uh, so if you just pay attention to that phrase, you'll hear that and see that in titles of almost every newspaper article politic, through the looking glass. How many times have you heard that expression in the last? It, it's constant because they represent, or Wonderland. Did yep. you know that Wonderland Wonderland has 6 million hashtags?
0: Uh,
1: 15 really? million hashtags if you include winter Wonderland. Uh. <laughs> so it's, it's all around us. Did, did he invent the it. word
0: Wonderland? When we're singing, walking in a winter wonderland, did that uh, originally? Well, he,
1: he, yeah, his wonderland was Alice. Yeah, that, he invented yeah. that magical place, which is now like a noun. Hmm. Um, and down the rabbit hole as a portal somewhere sure. through the looking glass. They've all been uh, around since he wrote about them 157 years ago. <sighs> we just don't realize how often we're using it. We've forgotten
0: so, you know, I I, I want to come back to these grander questions, I I really do, but I have to take this opportunity to ask. You mentioned before we started recording that you've got some uh some of these terms and and whatnot that he. Uh, created and that we use these these things that pop up in popular culture or our own daily speech. Do you, are there any more of those besides you know Wonderland, Looking Glass, Rabbit Hole? Anything else that we are kind of constantly talking about without necessarily realizing we're realizing we're referencing Alice?
1: Well, obviously, Curiouser and Curiouser. I think people probably know that that's from Alice in Wonderland. Um, also, we're all mad here. Uh, that that is a, uh, a constant uh, refrain. Um, but more than the references to some of the language, some of which is more obscure, uh, but in language itself, it's how often and, and how many mediums use Alice to communicate a story. So my daughter just went to the Taylor Swift concert and she wrote a song about wonderland that was supposedly about her breakup with uh harry styles Mm, and she uses it really brilliantly in terms of her lyrics uh and you know i mean so many musicians have used it um obviously jefferson airplanes white rabbit but you know the beatles and elton john and it it just sort of goes on and on, and that's the part that uh, surprised me—the depth of of Alice in culture. Um, I mean, I'm a fan of Tolkien, but I don't I don't know if he has 320 million views of Alice content on YouTube. Maybe he <laughs> does. I don't know. You know, Alice is the second most quoted literary works in the world.
0: After it's got to be Shakespeare.
1: It's the Bible.
0: Oh, well, okay, fine. Yes. Wait, Shakespeare? Shakespeare. Surpassing so sh- Shakespeare? Really? Well,
1: Shakespeare, go back and forth. So if you do Shakespeare, all of Shakespeare's works, hmm. he he wins. He's in second. If you just do uh, Lewis Carroll's two books, apparently he's ahead. Not that anybody's going to win a trophy over this. But I was going to
0: anyway. say, we, we need to have like a, we need to have an <laughs> alley snap fight, you know, with uh, the two, the two camps.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. That's funny. So somebody
0: got to make this happen. I, that's the YouTube content I want. I want. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'd be curious if uh, anybody uh, wants to venture their ideas of where they see Alice content kind of in everyday life, either in language or situation or whatever, uh, go hit up discord. There's gonna be a thread for this episode where we'll be talking about this episode. I wanna hear uh, what other people have seen or heard or used uh, in their lives. So love yeah, to I, see just wrote
1: a, I just wrote a blog about a hotel and it's all—all all the rooms are themed around Alice in Wonderland, and there's pop-up bars that do that. Uh, there's, you know, I mean, there's crazy amount of art. Um, I've interviewed lots of different artists who mm. use it as a jumping-off place, so it's, you'll find it everywhere.
0: I—I I, I know I have, and I know I will. The one that's popping into my mind right now is the Matrix. Uh, And I want to use this as just a a way to ask a different question. But in The Matrix, for those who recall, at the beginning of the movie, he still doesn't know who he is or what's going on. And and he gets this message, follow the white rabbit. And somebody's got a, a tattoo of a white rabbit. He follows her and eventually meets Morpheus. And he says, I'll show you how far the rabbit hole goes and that sort of thing. And so obviously very direct references. But is that part of what makes a work like this last and it's kind of a chicken or egg question which is which do we remember it because of the references or do we make the references because we remember it uh is it the kind of thing where you get obsessed with something else that references alice and one alice in wonderland and you go well i gotta go read that now to understand this whole white rabbit rabbit hole thing in the matrix or what have you Right. Yeah, I mean that's, I, a, I wonder, that's an
1: interesting that's an interesting question because in the Matrix it says take the blue pill, or the red pill, and and I love the Matrix, and I think people think of Alice in Wonderland as those two pills, when really it was a potion, a red potion or a blue potion that she could. Um, but I think it's I think to answer that question, it's it's the it over this much time, it's the collective uh alice pop culture experience so we we know the original that will stand the test of time but all of these other um iterations come together for us when we think about alice so some people haven't read the books but they know alice from the animated movie the disney movie Um, some people know it now from the matrix some know it from jefferson airplanes white rabbit i think all of it collectively is part of the reason that we think about Wonderland as a magical place and down the rabbit hole as a portal, as a looking glass to another to a to another destination, mm. um, and uh, you know it's it's the collective consciousness of all the different multi generational and multi uh, cultural that come together to create this awareness and this interpretation of Alice and then when you're an artist when you're when you're creating something then that begs the question is it am i reflecting the original or am i reflecting all that's come before it and if i'm if i'm after it and if i'm if i'm representing all of that that's come after it is it interesting is it new is it adding Is it going to stand the test of time will it be relatable to you know the audience today which goes to the reason that intellectual properties go in the public domain because a movie i mean a a a book like alice in wonderland that was a reflection of victorian england well what's the reflection now the reflection now is what do we need what kind of myth you know we've had good and bad We need a myth that's about what's real and not real, Mm. and Alice still could reflect that: Is this real? Is this a dream? Is this a nightmare? Where are we? And then, and also the theme that Lewis Carroll was was writing about in terms of identity and finding finding an identity that's relevant now. So you just have to contextualize it to reflect what's going on in culture. And if you do that, hopefully, um, you know, you'll, as you said earlier, you'll tap a, you know, a sort of a bridge, an emotional bridge that's relatable to, to the readers.
0: Hmm. So here's another question for you. Um, and I'm not quite sure, I, I'm going to have to like back into this one in some weird ways. Uh, <laughs> first of all, and I know this is verboten but we're going to have to set Shakespeare aside, okay? So, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Thank you. Sorry, Shakespeare. Uh, Because he's just such an obvious exception. But in Western culture, let's just say the Anglo-American tradition that you you and I are going to be most familiar with, the stories that last, if we come back to our question, the stories that last seem to involve an individual Going on a journey, and probably returning. Maybe not, but usually returning, right? Yeah, I mean, we could go all the way back to the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, but obviously more uh, more contemporary works. I'm thinking things like, um, the, you know, The Hobbit, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Star Wars, for heaven's sake, you know, Wizard, what of, Oz, Wizard, Wizard of Oz, Wizard of Oz. There you go. Peter Pan, yeah. yeah, there's somebody that goes on a journey learn something and then usually comes back with that new knowledge. Are there any other kinds of stories that last in our culture or is I'm trying to think of other types of truly enduring stories again, with the giant exception that is old Bill uh, looming over us with his, uh, with his plays. I think
1: that um, there, you know, there's these archetypal characters. So, you know, you have, you know, the chosen one, which is what you're talking about. Right. And, you know, that's the hero's journey is so iconic and and it n- never seems to get old. Um, you have archetypes where you go to a magical place like the, uh, the Narnia series mm-hmm. and those last and that's a bunch of, you know, those are those kids um, going into a magical place and finding their, finding their way back. Um, so some combine the archetypal stories. Um, I, I guess you could go to some great fiction, like the great Gatsby and things like that, that have a universal truth that and incredible writing. But in terms of these big fantasy sci-fi stories, they're usually fairly grounded in this uh, chosen one. And that's true for movies and for games and for novels that play in that territory.
0: Yeah. This is another thing I want to kick to the readers. Um, Let me know what you think would be something that would kind of qualify as, uh, as a story that has lasted. Um, You know, we have, little one-offs here and there you mentioned the great gatsby you might say you know heart of darkness or you know something like that where you get a a concept or a word or phrase that uh, that kind of embeds itself in the culture um but we don't we don't really tell ourselves the story of the great Gatsby over and over and over again, unless I'm mistaken and I'm just not seeing it um, across the culture, the way that I see these other stories. Maybe I'm a hammer and, you know, these are all nails. I I don't know. Uh,
1: I I think, you know, uh, when you live in the world of fantasy and um, sci-fi, it's... It's a little bit harder to, uh, I don't, I don't live in the, I, know. I mean, I, 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 there's, there's so many books like the lovely bones that I can remember making me cry and thinking, Oh, that book's going to last. Um, you know, like the, there was a book I read called the full catastrophe that was hilarious. Um, but yeah, they don't, they don't transcend because they're not of other worlds and other worlds usually have sequels. And when they catch on, they speak this universal truth. Um, that just attracts attracts readers. And a lot of times now they're young adult or middle grade readers that have a lot of time to read and then they stick with them and that helps them become adult readers. I was very surprised, uh, this is off the subject, but when I went to Comic-Con for the first time, I was there selling a comic book because my book had been published in the UK but hadn't been sold here. And I, I, I was shocked that people wanted the novel more than the comic book at a comic book convention because comic book readers um, are consumers of all things culture and especially novels, and they love to be early adapters. And I, I, think, I think the nature of those kinds of readers are to wanna to immerse themselves into worlds. And that when you're a world creator, you're going to have a particular kind of person who wants to you know, fall into the rabbit hole of your creation. Um, and I think that might be one of the reasons that uh, these stories last and people keep uh, sharing these stories generation to generation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, I had another question for you. It's been chased out of my mind. I'm really, really hoping it comes back. <laughs> but, oh, you know what? Here's, a, here's another one for you. Something for us to consider. We, we can try to tease out why this or that 75-year-old story, 100-year-old story, 500-year-old story has lasted up to our generation do you feel like we could have any sense at all of what is being created now or in the last 10 or 20 years? What's being created now that will continue, that will endure uh, for future generations and future centuries? Do you have any sense of that?
1: If I was a caterpillar seer, uh, I would be able to uh, (laughs) tell you the answer to that. But you know, the ability to tap into something so profoundly human uh, and and relevant um, that doesn't have to reflect like a, an idiosyncratic kind of political moment or cultural moment, something that is so, univer- so universal that it just transcends time
0: um, is,
1: and I, I can't think of something Right now, yeah. or dare not to uh, speculate.
0: Try to guess. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, I, I run into this. Other than, theory. of
1: course, the Looking Glass Wars, we know that's going to happen. <laughs> so.
0: Very obviously true. Obviously, obviously. True. I, you know, I think that's that is obviously the most important thing that your your story has to not simply reflect your own time. It has to reflect deeper truths, human truths that people will continue to uh, to see in future generations. But also important, and I'm not saying this is as important, marketing. And I don't know what role that played for Lewis Carroll, uh, for Tolkien, for whoever. I, I don't know all the ins and outs of how marketing worked back then. But it seems to me that you have to have um, you have to have a delivery system that's going to reach a critical mass of people. And you have to have a marketing system that is going to tell enough people that this is interesting and important so that it can, it can kind of blanket enough of the culture that then uh, it takes on a life of its own. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, this is all off the cuff. I don't know for sure, but it strikes me that um, you know shouting into the wind might work sometimes, but it's going to take a bigger engine to get things out there and blanket that culture. Well, Uh, you
1: know, the thing is that authors are not always the best at uh, marketing their own work. And, and so it's, it's difficult when there's so much clutter. And to your point, there's so many ways to, to express yourself and to get out there. And, And really it's about community and the folks who have a community, uh, going into selling their, their book or whatever their, their music or creating a community and offering, uh, their, their creativity, uh, to, to people and building up that trust. And then, then you can, you know, lack of a better word, leverage those foot soldiers, you know in the old days it was pressing the flesh uh, so you go to you know when i would when i started i was doing maybe seeing 15000 middle school kids a year so i did all kinds of school events because even though my book was is is categorized as ya the biggest readers are your son's age 10 mm-hmm. 11 12 into 13, into middle grade. They're the ones who have the time. They have the interest. They don't have the distractions. And as an author, when you go to a school, you have a captive audience for kids that are not in math class. (laughs) So so you have the bonus of that. But when you get into that situation, you have to make sure you engage the kids in a way that doesn't bore them. But also makes the librarian and the English teacher happy. So you have to find that, that, that sort of balance. So you know, that's one way, not only do authors have or get the exposure they want, but independent booksellers, they use author visits to their local schools because they know they can sell a lot of books because the author is there, the kids buy it on the spot, it's signed and i mean i'd go to arizona and i would see 300 fifth graders in one presentation i would do 300 sixth graders seventh graders and so there'd be 900 kids at the end of it wanting to buy books well that's a lot of book sales uh, in in one day that allows the independent bookstore to compete with the you know amazon to the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: All right. Um, I I want to move on and talk about the Looking Glass Wars and other uh, projects that you have. Um, but before we move off of this subject, I want to make sure that I give you the chance to run through any of the, the notes, observations, questions that you've got before we go off the subject. Anything else you wanted to bring up, Frank?
1: Um no i think we 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 riffed off of uh how why stories are uh, are important and and uh using alice as an example of um of that so i think uh we did a i think it was free flow, right. flowing yeah, pretty I, good
0: i hope people enjoyed that um and if so and you know if you didn't you're not listening so i, I goodbye <laughs> i guess but uh <laughs> let's talk about the looking glass wars Tell me when the first book came out because I, I neglected to look up the year on that one.
1: Well, I first published uh, in the UK right. in 2004. That, okay. So um, I uh, most of the book, most of the publishers here passed and weren't interested. I sold it to Egmont, and the book did very well in hardback. And then did exceedingly well in paperback. And after the paperback came out, Random House and Penguin um, were both interested. And then I found myself, after being rejected by Random House twice and Penguin four times, they were both in a bidding war for (laughs) the book. So it was terribly satisfying. Um, And I went with. Penguin, that is now Penguin Random House. <laughs> yes, uh, that was so, a moot point after not yes, too long. Ex- exactly, <laughs> consolidation. Uh, and, and and that published the Looking Glass Wars published here in two thousand six, and then Seeing Red published in two thousand eight, and um, uh, Arch Enemy I think was two thousand ten, and then I published a prequel called Hatter Madigan: Ghosts in the Hatbox. In two thousand fifteen, and then I've co-written, I think, eight graphic novels that make up what's there so far. And is so.
0: it with younger readers? Uh, is it is it also the case with the fifth and sixth graders that they want the novel and not the the uh, graphic novel as much, or do they gravitate more than the Comic Con audience? Or those graphic novels?
1: Well, interesting. Now, middle grade graphic novels are quite the rage. Mm. Uh, They're very, very popular. When I was publishing, they weren't as popular. So what the graphic novels became was a bridge for reluctant readers, often boys, who would buy the graphic novel and then say, "Okay, this is cool. I love this character of Hatter Madigan, who was the male action hero, and I'm willing to now read this book about Alice and um, and her bodyguard Hatter." Uh, and so, uh, librarians use that strategically to motivate readers. Now you can go to Barnes and Noble or. You know, you can see a huge section of, or any independent bookstore of, um, of graphic novels. So, it probably would be a bit different, mm. but
0: yeah, okay, cool. Uh, all right, so it's the the Looking Glass Wars is the first in the series. You mentioned Seeing Red, Arch Enemy, uh, and Hatter Madigan. Uh, so people can check that out now. I and I'm I'm just gonna lob up a, a big softball for you okay this is a watermelon for you to take a swing at (laughs) but I have this whole thing about with with art with great art there may be an age floor but there's no age ceiling you know we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation my seven-year-old likes Alice in Wonderland for certain reasons uh, but then my wife can really enjoy that as well you can read it when you're 80 or 90 or 100 and and take different things out of it because you're putting different things into it with the looking glass wars. Um, you're saying it's kind of tailored and targeted toward a younger audience, but what about adults? Are adults going to enjoy this as well?
1: Well, uh, let me tell you a little, but well, let me take the four quadrant theory of movies sure. where everybody can enjoy it. So in, in my case with the book, I, I didn't know, that there were all these categories when I was writing the book. So if I had known that I probably would have written it a little bit differently because in the story, it starts with a seven-year-old Alice, a 13-year-old Alice, and then an 18-year-old Alice. One of the reasons that the publishers in the U.S. passed was because Harry Potter was successful and you were following the age of the character. And so they knew that their core audience of kids would be 13, 14, and then they would move up. Um, and, of course, then it became a phenomenon and everybody was reading it. So in the U.S., they said, OK, we're going to publish it as young adult. And then in Germany, they said they're going to publish it as an adult novel. And then in the UK, they the, Egmont considers themselves, they call themselves a children's publisher. So I couldn't really answer that question, <laughs> except to tell you that at Comic-Con, which is almost all adults, they devoured my book and they bought more copies of my book at one Comic-Con than a full day at seeing 900 kids at a, at a school. Hmm. Um, and so... I feel like I got, I have this crossover audience. And of those Comic-Con people, I I, ha- I have a, a mailing list of 50,000 people having done that over years, and they're all adults. And the kids that had been reading it are now adults, and they see me at Comic-Con, they go, oh, I read that when I was 13. Matter of fact, you came to my school. Um, so I think I've been able to crossover uh and you know what you should do really is read it to your son and see if you enjoy it while you're reading it or well, do the uh, audiobook because gerard doyle this Brit, mm-hmm. did an amazing job and he does voices and sound
0: effects so <laughs> nice sound effects is a little rarer in a in a audiobook. That's great.
1: And then you come back to me and tell me which, 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 which you think, which audience do you think?
0: I I will tell you this. I have not read the whole thing yet, but I have dipped into it. I grabbed a copy uh, in preparation for our conversation. I knew we wouldn't be like diving into the book. So I I haven't yet read the entire thing. Uh, But after a few chapters, it's just, it's delightful. Uh, It's so much fun. Um, And it kind of reminds me of something that we talk about often when we do younger reader stories. We did the Perdane Chronicles. We're doing Redwall right now, where just because something is, you know, more simplistic in the language or the morals or the plot or something doesn't like that doesn't make it any less potentially adult. Uh, You bring it's it's Luke Skywalker's cave in the in the Empire Strikes Back. You'll get out of it what you bring into it. Right. And so if you are ready to uh, to take um, a story that may be geared toward younger audiences, but but bring yourself into it and maybe put yourself in a younger mindset, a more simple mindset. You don't have to work that hard, my friend.
1: I oh. appreciate the the little, the sell that you're doing, but really readers of adults do not have <laughs> to work that hard. Uh, you don't have to convince adults that the language is sophisticated enough or thematically. Um, you know, it's I, not uh, it's not Lord of the Rings, but... It's also you know 400 pages so yeah. it's very consumable and uh, thematically I think it's relatable uh, to adult and in the same way that Alice has levels uh, you you'll see you'll find yeah. you'll find the levels of of um, adult uh, content.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it, it's not that I'm trying to do such a hard sell on on your book per se. It's just it, this is something that I run into sometimes where people say, "No, that book is for kids. I want an adult book," and that's, that's okay sometimes. But but my whole thing is just no. It's books for kids can be good for you too. You know, if it's a good well, book, it's a good book. End of story. Well
1: you know, look at, I think like the hunger games has shown that, you know, that was a young adult novel that, you know, all kinds of adults read. You don't have that kind of phenomenal success without, with adults, uh, Percy Jackson, um, that's squarely young mm. adult, middle grade, young adult, a lot of adults, uh, read Percy Jackson. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, there, there's value, uh, and, uh, I mean there's certain books you know like the there's certain books that yes you 're right that they're but they 're usually towards middle grade because now middle grade is a category, and that thematically and as use of language uh and themes is much more uh, uh geared towards that audience where young adults, depending on what kind of young adult you 're talking about, can really swing into mm. all sorts of you know, intense, difficult subject matters. Yeah. Um, so, I uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't shy away from really good young adult.
0: There you go. All right. Well, uh, on that note, Frank Bedore, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: So the only thing that I'm going to ask you to plug is yep. my podcast. Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: Which is called All Things Alice where we talk about Alice in pop culture, but I also talk with creators, writers and artists about their art, how they create it, and how Alice has influenced creativity and imagination through the decades and how she's been a muse for all kinds of talented and inspirational people. And they come on and talk about the creative process. And um, it's it's a lot of fun.
0: I'm going to go ahead and guess that the Venn diagram for our audiences would be would be uh, have a nice overlap there. So people should definitely go check that out.
1: Uh, I, I think so, having listened to your uh, podcasts and uh, seeing all the books that you're referencing and that you're delving deep into. So yeah. uh, this is specific to Alice and culture, but uh, please have uh, come check it out.
0: All right, all things, Alice. Frank Bador, thanks again. Hey, it was a real pleasure.